Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again we're going to be talking about the uh, Kingdom of God. And uh, the kingdom of God uh, occasionally talks about coming out of her, my people. And, uh, of course, we see in Egypt, the people were in bondage in Egypt, and they were brought out of that bondage in Egypt. Uh, there were people in the Walden camp of the Golden Calf out in the desert after they came out of Egypt. And Moses called certain men out of that camp or called everybody out who would remain faithful to the Lord whatever that meant at the time which is a a question that we may address because we're going to be looking at Exodus and uh, there was also the comment in Revelation about coming out of Babylon and a lot of people want to know how to come out of Babylon but then a lot of people don't even know what Babylon is and so there's a question of uh, understanding the biblical texts, the ancient scripts, and what they were doing. Obviously, the Pharisees had an interpretation of the Old Testament, of the Torah. But at the same time that they had their interpretations, the Essenes had their interpretation, and the Sadducees had their interpretation. They all had access to the Torah. And they all had a little bit different interpretation. Uh, actually, in some cases, quite a bit different interpretation of what the Torah was actually saying. The Essenes referred to the interpretation of the Pharisees as a fiction and a fraud. And we know that Jesus came to take the kingdom away from the Pharisees, who were in control of the government of Judea at that particular time, and give it to some who would bear fruit. And those he gave it to have often been called the called out. So they were called out as well. The uh, Levites were called out in the wilderness and the apostles and the 120 in the upper room, the 70, were called out by Jesus Christ to be in the world but not of the world. And that statement alone needs to be somewhat understood properly. In order to do that, we look at the Greek and find that there are four or five different words in the Greek text that are all translated at times into the single English word world. So when Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world and that I'm going to uh, pick certain people that I keep from the world and uh, they'll be in the world but not of the world, What word is he using? Because of all those different ones, he's actually using the same one in every case. And the word he uses according to, and I quote, the modern concordance, that word means constitutional order or system of government. So he's saying that some men would not be a part of the governments of the world. Those constitutional orders and systems of government like Caesar. Caesar had a constitutional order and system of government. I mean, Rome was a republic, had a constitution, had offices. We've talked about that for the last couple of weeks, the different offices in Rome, 
And we can equate those offices in Rome to modern governments because the duties of those offices are often very much the same. And uh, and they were a matter of election. The emperors were technically elected by an electoral college of the Senate. And the Romans believed in separation of powers. But that separation of powers was often blended in these offices. As Rome went from an actual libera res publica, or republic, in its early days, 500 years before Christ, to the time of Christ when it was... By the time Christ was born, uh, they had already had almost 25 years of imperial rule, which even though Augustus often campaigned on the idea of returning or restoring the republic, he actually kept moving the people farther and farther away from the republic because he altered the, the thinking of the people by altering the institutions of the people and the way in which those people and their institutions interacted. And he did this more by free bread and circuses than probably anything else. We talked about the reforms to their military and the way in which they defended themselves, uh, the way in which they provided free bread to the community and to the people through their temples. That was one of the duties of the temples. Uh, their temples did all sorts of things. Their temples minted coin. Most of the coin came out of the temple of Mineta, which is where we get the word money. So when we say temple, everybody has a tendency, oh, well, those are pagan temples. Well, they had an actual function and a duty. And those functions and duty had a great deal to, those were the institutions of society. And we were told to preach the gospel of the kingdom to every creature. And the word they use there in the text, in the Greek text, for creature can actually mean institutions. So the precept upon precept that we see in the gospel of the kingdom, which are the precepts of God, needed to be preached to every institution of mankind. Unfortunately, a great deal of our institutions today are modeled more after the Roman model (laughs) under the emperors than they are under the model of the early church and, and and the kingdom of God. And so when we explore Exodus, we will take reference to that so that we will start to understand the connection between the story of Exodus and this and the world in which we live today how does one leave bondage if you wake up some morning and find out that you are in the bondage of Egypt how would you leave that well you would want to understand what was going on in Exodus and uh, as I mentioned a week or so ago I, I listened to uh, the beginning of the series on Exodus that is set out by uh, Jordan Peterson and a number of scholars and uh, students of the Bible and they they talked about Exodus and so far I haven't heard the whole thing so I withhold my judgment but uh, some of the things they said were very close to a proper interpretation of Exodus but they haven't got very far into it so it will be interesting to see how close they do come 
Well, we're going to set some of the groundwork so that people can see how close that time of Israel, while they were in the bondage of Egypt, is similar to our own. And, of course, because we're dealing with Exodus and the second book of the Pentateuch, uh, which is Exodus, we're going to have to take a look at Moses because it's in understanding each of these different factors of the the Exodus and this book and the the interaction of the people with their government, which was the government of Egypt, that we begin to understand where they were really going, what the real complaint was, why people were not as fruitful as they needed to be, and how those institutions were causing a corruption amongst the people, and how they needed to get away from those institutions in order to find the kingdom of God, which is, when we say the words kingdom of God, we're talking about the dominion of God, where God has dominion over you, and we know from what we studied in Genesis that God gave some of that dominion to man. He gave us dominion over the fish and the the fowl and the, the land of the earth, and we were to dress it and keep it. And that was a dominion that was entrusted to mankind and has passed down from generation to generation because the kingdom of God we know from the biblical text is from generation to generation. Noah was chosen to survive a holocaust that took place, a natural holocaust that took place on the earth where there was a massive flood and he survived because of the fact that he was righteous in his generations. And so what that means could use some exploring as well, uh, but we're, that's not going to be the topic right now because we have already come up to Exodus. So when we look at Exodus 1, it starts off right away with uh, how Israel, while they were in this bondage in Egypt, they were fruitful. It says, now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now, when we read these texts, we have to realize that some of the story of this is, of course, we can go find it in Genesis, how they went into bondage. They they had cast their brother into a pit and then sold the, their own brother into slavery uh, to their cousins, who in turn took their brother and sold him into slavery in Egypt. Now, if they did that technically Joseph could have fled Egypt any time 
because of the fact that he supposedly didn't consent to this. He was taken by pirates. And if you're taken by pirates, you can become free at any time. Although pirates are even very clever. When they take you, they, they make you swear oaths. But of course, oath under the duress of death is uh, is not a valid oath. But then, of course, you could say that, uh, well, we weren't going to kill him. We were just going to tell him he had to leave the ship. That's what walking the plank was. That we're, we're not going to kill you if you don't take this oath. So the oath remains voluntary. But we're not going to keep you on board our ship if you're not going to abide by an oath of a, allegiance to us. So you can leave. And they set out the plank, which they usually set out the plank to help you walk off of the ship onto a dock, for instance. But there is no dock. You just walk the plank. <laughs> so that was a kind of a pirate humor that uh, we didn't make you take the oath. You, you voluntarily took the oath. But, uh, of course, the, there's much to be desired in the explanation that, uh, of what is voluntary and what is not voluntary. But the reality is if you don't have your own provisions, if you can't fend for yourself in the world, whatever world that, if you're out at sea or whatever, and, and this is also why they sometimes maroon people on islands, is that, well, you can go fend for yourself. We'll just let you go. And uh, But what happened was the brothers, who we just mentioned, sold Joseph to their cousins who sold him into Egypt. And I assume that when they went to take Joseph out of the pit, they said, will you go with us? And uh, But we will buy you out of this pit. We will pay your brothers a ransom and we will take you out of this pit. They won't kill you because they were contemplating that. And uh, we'll take you down to Egypt. And so he sold them into, he was sold into slavery into Egypt. Which wasn't, you know, we, we talk about slavery and there's all kinds of slavery. Egypt did not use slavery very much. It wasn't very common to have actual what we would call slaves in Egypt they had a different system in Egypt and in our uh, in the book uh, Covenants of the Gods we quote historians that say that slavery was never really popular in Egypt because of the fact that they had a system of corvi and actually the uh, uh, the scholars talking with Jordan Peterson mentions the corvi, but almost nobody studying the Bible today knows what a corvi is. Corvi is what is a French word for statutory labor, where you, a portion of your labor belongs to the state. It belongs to the government. It belongs to the the body politic that you live in. A portion of your labor belongs to them, and that is, of course, the bondage of Egypt where 20% of their labor was going to belong to the pharaoh. I mean, you could do what you wanted with the other 80% of your labor. That was for your children, for your livelihood. That was yours. But 20% of it belonged to the government. So how did that work? Because they didn't have any real uh, gold and silver money anymore in Egypt. That was part of the bondage. All the gold and silver went into the hands of the government and the people issued some other means of monetary exchange which we see common throughout ancient 
nations. Uh, the Spartans had lead money. They had lead money because there was no value anywhere outside of their community. And uh, so it forced the people to only trade amongst themselves in Sparta. And as some would say that uh, in Lycurgus you can read that gold in the hands of the people is an enemy of the state. They didn't want them to have wealth. They wanted them to be dependent upon the state. And of course, this is the same thing that we will see as uh, we get to Exodus and they go out into the wilderness and they create a golden calf. They all had gold when they left, which is a part of the prophecy we're going to see here, that they had this gold with them, but they took it off and put it into a golden calf which was a common practice amongst many Greek city-states, not just in Egypt where they had all the gold in the treasury of the pharaoh, but in Greek city-states they would create these golden statues and uh, that was their vault. That was their reserve fund. It was actually even called in the Greek language the reserve fund and occasionally Athens during war they would saw off a an arm or a leg or something of this statue turned it into coins so that they could finance the military and you know and buy the stuff that they needed to buy in order to fight the war so understanding the history of civilization is helpful in understanding the biblical text if you don't understand the history you're going to read some of these things and you're going to think you're going to get a Cecil B. DeMille image of a golden calf and dancing girls running around bowing down to the golden calf. Had a much more practical purpose, which is why I mentioned the temples of Rome. They all had practical purposes. They had duties. They had responsibilities. These responsibilities and duties were written out and they provided the free bread of the Roman emperors. They provided coinage of money. They provided health care in some instances to the people. So understanding that brings us back to Egypt. And in verse 8 we see, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. That word wisely can be subtly with them, cleverly with them, lest they multiply and it become it come to pass that when they there falleth out any war, they join also with our enemy and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters. So this is what they decided to do. They decided to set taskmasters over the people to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. And that that reference to Ramesses is it makes us date the time that we think this is taking place although this writing comes much later and and also these words like Pithom and Ramesses they have meanings 
And so you have to almost go back to the original Hebrew to find out what they're talking about. But we'll cover that when we go start looking at Moses himself. But the more they afflicted these Israelites, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. They were afraid of them. Instead of creating the social bonds of loyalty with the Israelites who lived in Goshen and uh, were becoming very prosperous in that area, they decided to use a system, institutions of oppression, and they created these taskmasters to afflict the people. Uh, This word, by the way, of taskmasters is actually... uh, composed of two different words. One is mak and the other is sar. Sar has a lot of times to do with govern and rule, but the uh, mak is uh, mem samek, which is that word that has to do with the corvi, forced labor, tasked workers, uh, labor bands. uh, And it's often translated uh, tributary or tribute. Because what it is, is that 20% of their labor became a tribute that they had to pay into the government. Now, 20% of their labor belonged to the Pharaoh, to the government of Pharaoh, based on what had happened in Genesis. But now they were putting these taskmasters and forcing these contributions. It was assumed that they would do this work for the Pharaoh this 20% of labor, and they what they probably did, what it appears they did from other writings and th- through traditions, is that for a period of time every year, usually when you weren't growing crops, because the crops came with the floods of the Nile, and so there were, there were periods of time where there were no crops to be planted. And so somebody from every household would go and work for... 20% of the year for the pharaoh. And uh, sometimes they would rotate these work projects throughout the year. If you weren't a farmer, you could come almost any time. And they would work for the pharaoh and do these work projects for the pharaoh. And a lot of the work projects benefited everybody, you know, like creating, you know, canals and uh, and places where they would channel the water of the Nile to prevent too severe a flooding, but to control moving that water so that these were big, huge government work projects that actually prospered the whole nation because they were able to farm more and more land as they created these work projects. So people voluntarily did it, but now it appears that they're appointing these taskmasters and afflicting the people. And so what that meant, we'll have to take a look at when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So... We uh, are seeing these taskmasters put into place. That is actually com- the, the the idea of taskmasters is composed of two separate words, 
in the original Hebrew, and one of those has to do with this idea of where the what you owed Pharaoh for bailing you out of the famine, the the, the dearth that we see it called in the New Testament, where there's this dearth in the land where crops failed, probably climate change, and so crops failed and everybody didn't. The grasses didn't grow, the wheat didn't grow, and so that food was getting in a short supply. And the people of Israel, they had gold to buy more wheat, and they could buy this wheat in Egypt, and they could buy this wheat in Egypt because Joseph saw what was coming, told the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh took his personal resources and started putting up grain. It wasn't that he was taxing people and putting up grain and taxing the labor of people and putting up grain. He had he was a wealthy man. He was a ruler, but he was a wealthy man. But all the people of Egypt, their labor belonged to them. It didn't belong to the king. It belonged to them. Because we see this in Genesis that because of this famine they went into this bondage as well. This 20% of their labor belonging to the government. They did this at the same time as Israel. But for some reason, the Israelites, they were prospering. They were, they were, they were having lots of children and their children were becoming very successful and they were hard working and something in their culture passed down from Jacob, maybe even in the virtual genes of their family, that they were prospering more than the Egyptians were prospering. They were growing stronger and stronger more than the Egyptians were. Both Egyptians and the Israelites owed 20% of their labor to the government. So it wasn't that. It wasn't that that 20% of the time that they work for the government. Because the government still could put up granaries. Their banks in Egypt at that time were actually granaries. Grain was the commodity money of Egypt. They were exporting grain out of Egypt to other nations as a trade good that would bring you know, things from other nations back into Egypt. We know that Egypt brought in things from all over the Mediterranean during that time because of the artifacts that we find. So they had an extensive trade with other nations throughout the Mediterranean. And what their trade good most often was, was grain because they could load up ships with this grain that was highly valued in other parts of the world. They, I'm sure they loaded up other things, but, you know, how much, how many commodities did they have? <laughs> we know that later on during the Roman Empire, they loaded up stone and shipped stone all the way to Rome, as well as grain. And we've talked about the amounts of grain that came from Egypt. But that was money, and their banks actually deposited grain because that was what was the commodity money of the time. But we see them bringing in these taskmasters that are forcing and what they say is afflicting. And we see this word afflicting both in verses 11 and in 12. 
uh, in verse 12 it says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And, and that word afflicted is also, it's ana in the, the Hebrew. And it's translated afflict about 50 times, but also force, exercised, um, trouble, weaken, uh, oppress. Uh, these are the ideas that are associated with this word. And if we go into a study of the word, we'll see that occasionally they'll add additional letters to the word. It, it, it does mean somehow or other to put an extra burden on the people, even associated with the idea of browbeating, you know, forcing, putting people down, uh, humiliating people. It's even translated humble. 11 times. So, this affliction through these taskmasters and putting the burden on the people didn't make them weaker. It actually made them stronger. And so, this was quite a quandary. And so, they were kind of come up, you know, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. Mortar in and in brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And we, so we've seen that word rigor several times. It's perak in the uh, Hebrew. And uh, it means rigor, harshness, severity. You know, they, they were being cruel in the way in which they were making them serve. And how they were doing that is, you know, of course we had the movie, uh, The Ten Commandments, and we see them, you know, whipping people, pulling big huge stones and things like that, but that's probably not really the way they did it. It was uh, one way that some scholars think that this was done, and if you go back and read a lot of the ancient Hebrew texts about this period of time, which of course even Cecil B. DeMille's used uh, other people to examine that particular time, etc. If somebody in your household owed your family owed 20% of the labor of one male member of your household, that was not a real heavy burden. But if you said for every male of your household you owe 20%, that could become a real burden. Because some of the males weren't of age yet. They were maybe two years old or one year old. Do they have to do 20% of the labor? <laughs> so the idea is that instead of it, somehow or other they were increasing this burden and they were doing it through these taskmasters. So they came up with another plan which we see in verse uh, 15. The king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives of which the name of one was Sifra and the name of the other was Pua and he said when ye do the office of midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stool. It's actually the word there is kind of the wheel, the birthing wheel. If it be a son, then ye shall kill it. Him, but if it be a daughter, then shall they live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. So they've already had the child. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty, and it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, and he made them houses, the Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So he's actually, they say, charged this, and that's a, another Hebrew word that they use there that is... uh Translated command. He commanded this. 514 times it's, it's translated command. Or some form of command or commandment. But about 39 times it's, it's translated charge and five times a point. But basically it was like a statutory law that you were to cast out that child. And if you didn't cast out that child, there must be some sort of penalty involved if this is the statutory casting out. So how that worked, it's difficult to say, but there was pressure on the people not to have male children. And later on when we look at Moses and possibly who Moses was historically, we will see that they did find an area that there was an inordinate number of females in this community, there was a decided lack of males in the community, more than nature would have normally uh, been. And so there may have been some sort of pressure put upon the people to not keep male children. Now, you know, when we talked about the one-child policy that was for a period of time in China, but now that we're facing population collapse, you can have more than one child in China. But a lot of people were aborting the female children rather than the male children and they have an inordinate number of males now because of that but they also found that they had large numbers of females in communities that were unregistered in China and they didn't know they even existed until they got up to like marrying age and work age and they said well where'd these people come from? Well, a lot of people were hiding their female children. And, of course, this is what we're going to see happening with Moses, that he is hidden away. So, to sum up, the Israelites and the Egyptian people were in this bondage because they consented to the bondage. They were depending upon the rulers who exercised authority one over the other to become their benefactors, provide them with grain and food during famines. And the original Pharaoh did not own the labor of the people before this famine, but afterwards he owned everybody's labor, a portion of everybody's labor. But the people had sold themselves in this time of famine. That's an important thing to understand. If we look at Genesis 47:24, And it shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give a fifth part, that's 20%, 
unto the Pharaoh. And four parts shall be your own for seed in the field. So a fifth of their labor. So you would give either a fifth of your labor or you could give it in the form of the commodity money or the grain. But uh, if they had enough grain, they might say, well, we got enough grain. We need your labor. And that's where the taskmaster comes in so that you actually had to leave your field for 20% of the year and go and work for the the pharaoh. And this is where the taskmasters come in too. Now, again, that might have been somewhat voluntary at one time because these big work projects were necessary in order to expand the agricultural system and make the whole community wealthier. But they were using it to afflict the Israelites. And evidently they weren't doing it to all Egyptians, but focusing on the Israelites. But anyway, so you can you can read that. We have links on our page at Preparing You uh, where you can follow along. But this bondage uh, was a corvee of 20% of your labor belonged to the government. And you they could collect it in a number of ways. If you were an artisan, they, you might produce some artwork for the pharaoh. And that would pay your 20%. If you were just a common laborer, you might go and drag stone or dig ditches or what have you. And, of course, this brought more wealth into the government. But the point is, is a portion of your labor, however they collected it, belonged to the government. And we see this same yoke of labor under Rehoboam and even under Solomon uh, because they refer to in Kings 12, verse 14, and Kings 12, verse 18, this tribute that was owed. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Evidently, he would raise that percentage. He would create that rigor that we see with Egypt. And, of course, that's where Israel... A lot of Israel, they didn't go back to their cities. They went back to their tents. We've explained that in other audios, what that meant. They moved away from this civil membership in Israel. And they said, what is David to us? And they went back to their own tents instead of to the civil union that they had with their government. Where a portion of their labor belonged to... Rehoboam, or a portion of their labor belonged to the pharaoh, or a portion of their labor belonged to their president, or, you know, the government that he represents. And that, of course, that portion of your labor belonging to the government is, in essence, the bondage of Egypt. If it stays at 20%, if it stays at somewhat a voluntary system, you may be able to burden, uh, accept the burden, but if they start playing with the burden where it can get higher and higher than 20%, then you can pretty much count on the fact that you are expected to serve with rigor and you're back in the bondage of Egypt and you will feel the sting of that bondage. God sent Moses to take the people out of that bondage. They had to learn some lessons in the process. And, of course, that's what we're going to see as we study Exodus. What were the lessons they were learning uh, during this time? Uh, the servitude corrupts the master as much as the bondservant because power corrupts the master and the legal charity of the master for the people usually weakens the masses. 
But in the case of Israel, they were actually getting stronger because there was a lot less legal charity and a lot more rigor. And what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So it did not have the desired effect that the Egyptians had. So they plotted to actually annihilate the people through literally, which we will see in reference to this same account in the New Testament, that they actually were trying to cause the people to abort their children. Today in America, most abortions are the result of financial pressures on the people. And that's why most of the abortions take place, because of this financial pressure. There was also a large breakdown in the family, so there's a lot of out-of-wedlock pregnancies. But again, that again is a matter of finances, not just the fact that you don't have a husband, but a general breakdown of the family, and there's a lot of things that have caused that. But the idea that the master's become more tyrannical when you create this Corby system where a portion of your labor has to go to the government and the the government will become more corrupt. And we can look at, you know, quotes. I have links there. If you click on the word masses, we go to the Polybius who, who was telling people of Rome that when they became accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, that they themselves would institute the rule of force and violence where they would take away from their neighbor by force and that would cause a degeneration in the people themselves so that the people became more savage, perfect savages, he says. What that is, is the institutions of society the legal charity of society that they think is going to have the effect of taking care of the needy and the poor of society is actually degenerating society because there is an element in those institutions that are not a part of the gospel of the kingdom. And this is a huge blind spot with almost all modern religions now. They have a blind spot. Their eyes have been darkened and they cannot see that these systems that depend upon men who exercise authority one over the other, exercise dominion over the people, and force the contributions of the people in order to provide the welfare for the people, that institution will degenerate the people, make them weaker, so that they will not bear fruit. Now, the good news is life is going to get harder like that rigor that we see in Exodus in that first chapter where because life gets harder some people will get more lively and stronger and they will start to learn the lessons that we will see the Israelites learning during the time in which God sends Moses back to free the people they had some lessons to learn and they continued to learn those lessons even out into the wilderness but before they could even begin their journey into the wilderness They had to learn the lessons of a free society. How to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity instead of force, fear, and fealty. Because that's what they had learned in Egypt was how to take care of one another through force, fear, and fealty. But as the Pharaoh created heavier burdens through his institutions and uh, 
less benefits, which we will see, that people had to take up the slack themselves. And we'll, we'll talk about many places that we have seen this actually in our modern history. In the last 20, 50 years, at least in my lifetime, where people who were literally decaying, degenerating as a society, becoming weaker and weaker and weaker, they changed their institutions or their dependence upon government institutions, and they as a society became so strong that tyranny had no power anymore over them. And they were able to fight off foes, both foreign and domestic. But it was because they understood, basically, they understood the precepts that we see explained in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Some of these doctrines are not taught in the modern churches. Just before we came onto the program, we were hearing news stories about divisions in what is called the church today that are doing absolutely the opposite of what Moses taught, absolutely the opposite of what Christ taught, but they're actually encouraging abortion, casting out your children before they're fully generated, which we will see mentioned in the the same account in the New Testament. So the Pharaoh did not know or appreciate Joseph, that this Pharaoh that rose up, but he also didn't understand human nature or what we would call the law of nature. And we will make, because we just kind of finished our series on the law of nature and law in general, we will take a look at what that means. Because the the words law of nature or natural law or divine will or the will of God, these phrases are convertible phrases. They're all referring to the same thing. Now, everybody's interpretation of what the law of nature is may vary, but that may be simply dependent upon their private interpretation. So anyway, just as a review, again, this word taskmaster is from this mem semek, which is forced service, enforced payment, where you had to labor. If they didn't want to accept your grain as payment, they would make you go. They might actually tax more members than just that one head of the household. They would, and maybe if you had four or five sons, you would have to provide a great deal more taxes, much more labor to the government because you had these extra sons so that people actually found themselves casting out their male children. And the, the the rule was that they had to cast them into the river. And, of course, we'll see how Moses was cast into the river as well. But they put him in a basket first. <laughs> so he survived. But the, the inferences of what that was going to mean is going to be very important in understanding the whole of what was going on at that particular time. So if we look at Acts uh, 7, 19... We see this Stephen speech uh, where he's talking about Abraham and uh, what was going on in the days of Abraham. And then eventually that gets us down to Moses and what was going on with Moses in the days of uh, of the bondage of Egypt and this new king rising up. But I can let you go to preparing you and you can read all that. But one of the important things is that they are literally sound like they are talking about abortion 
not just casting them into the rivers. But we'll talk about Moses when we come back. The keys to the kingdom. So come right back because we've got more to tell you. So welcome back to the Keys of the Kingdom. So this Moses guy who wrote the Pentateuch, he started the Bible, he brought the people out of Egypt. I mean, he's the one who wrote Genesis. He wasn't around in those times, but he had access to all kinds of information. And so he he wrote down these stories that we see in Genesis. And then, of course, he wrote down the story that we see in Exodus. We see an accounting of that by Stephen in Acts 7. And this is right when Stephen was being tried. And and we're going to look eventually at different trials that have taken place against Christians to find out what was the beef with Christians? What was the beef with Israel? I mean, obviously, the Pharaoh thought he was afraid that Israel might get so strong that he would join their enemies. And so his idea was to oppress them so they became weaker and weaker. Well, it was a a bad strategy, but, you know, some people think that we're facing overpopulation in the world, that somehow other 7 billion, 8 billion, 9 billion, 10 billion people is what's causing all the problems in the world, and they think that they have to save the world by getting rid of billions and billions of people. They actually believe that, and they are willing, in some cases, to die to make that come about. And they think that they, they actually think that evil thought is a good thing. Cause they, they see evil as good and good as evil. So that's where we're at today. And they, they like the idea of, you know, uh, aborting children. If somebody, uh, what was it? Yay. I heard him say the other day that, uh, the biggest threat to black people in America today is when they're in the womb. Because half of all black babies in the womb are aborted. Now, I don't know if that's an accurate, but I know that abortion targets the black. It has since the beginning uh, with Margaret Sanger. And, of course, that's why there are so few blacks in America. There would actually be a lot more blacks in America if they weren't aborting so many of them. But uh, the reality is this idea that abortion is not exclusive to blacks. There's an awful lot of people that are aborting children. And, of course, then there are the number of children that don't get born because of contraception and because people just don't want big families. Uh, we're at a population growth in most of Europe and America that spells out population collapse, which is why they're bringing in so many immigrants because they won't have anybody to work in their factories because people aren't having enough children. And the number of births in America has not gone up now. It's actually gone down. Millions of children have not been born in the last two years, or at least in the last year and a half. And they're not sure what's causing that infertility, those miscarriages, and the the stillborns that are taking place because those numbers have been rising for some strange reason. But that's not the topic today. But it is a topic of the fact that some people actually devise plans to kill children in the womb. 
to lower the birth rate uh, for whatever reason. And we see that way back in the days of Pharaoh, that's what he was thinking and that's what Moses wrote about. And this was a new king, a new ruler that did not know Joseph, did not know the character of Joseph, who suddenly dealt with the people because of his crazy ideas. And crazy ideas have have been very common. Along comes this Moses that we see in in chapter uh, 7 of Acts in verse 19. And it says, The same dealt suddenly with our kindred and evil treated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. Now the word children there is the Greek word brephos, which actually more often means fetus. They were casting out their fetuses, not just newborns. And you think, well, did they know how to commit abortion in those days? Well, absolutely. We know hundreds, uh, centuries before Jesus Christ, the Hippocratic Oath was saying that doctors were to give no pessary, which means abortive substance, to their patients. That was part of the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, They don't seem to go by that anymore. They actually are committing abortions and that you can buy uh, pessaries right in the drugstore, you know, are you 486? And I don't know what all they are, but I've, I remember that particular one, uh, that, cause they, it's almost a flippant reference to, uh, 86 in your child, getting rid of your child. So that's so common today. It was, you had to take oath as a doctor not to do that, even 600 years before Jesus Christ. And, uh, yet it, we see them uh, clearly doing similar things at the time of the bondage of Egypt because of economic and and institutional pressures of the government. In verse 20 we see in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house for three months. Now we'll see that in Exodus But what I find interesting when I look at the words in the Greek, exceeding fair, it actually is very difficult to translate those words into exceeding fair. Because they literally mean Moses was God of the city. That That is the literal translation of those terms. Now, of course, this is Stephen about to be assassinated for his role as a Christian, as uh, one of the seven that were dealing with finances. And that's what a lot of people don't understand, is that this was all about their institution of welfare. And we'll we'll see that when we look at the trial with Festus. And Paul, uh, we'll equate it with other trials, like with Justin the Martyrs and uh, the Martyrs in North Africa, the seven men who were martyred in North Africa. All these trials had the same theme. They used slightly different languages at the time, but we will show you they all had the same theme. What Christianity was, was private religion. And religion was the pious performance 
of your duty to your fellow man. In other words, religion was the social welfare system of your society. There was public religion, the free bread of Rome, and there was private religion, which was the free bread, the daily ministration, the pure religion of Christians. And the pure religion of Christians, taking care of the needy of society, the the widows and orphans uh, and needy of society, taking care of them through faith, hope, and charity, irritated, irritated, something fierce, so much so that they wanted to kill Christians, the pagans. And what made them pagans, or what we call pagans, that's an invented word that we've come up with, was because their institutions of social welfare were based on legal charity. You had men who exercised authority one over the other. They called themselves benefactors, but they forced the contributions of the people in this legal charity, which is what Polybius was talking about with his masses. Through an appetite for benefits, had become accustomed to receiving them by the way of the rule of force and violence. In other words, by the way of these men who exercise authority, forcing with rigor their neighbors to provide them with benefits. That institution is not of the kingdom of God, but that is the adversary of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of Satan, the synagogue of Satan, the synagogue of the adversary. Because Christ forbid us to do that, but modern, of course, we're also not supposed to commit abortion, and modern churches say, many of them say that's okay, but almost all of them say it's okay to go to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other to obtain benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And they don't equate that with it being a covetous practice. And and because they don't, it weakens society. It degenerates the members of society. It destroys the social bonds of a free society. And in the study of Exodus, we will see that Moses who was timely generated, in other words, went full term, was the god of the city, the god of the civil system. He was the rightful pharaoh of Egypt. But he did not want to rule over the people. He faced the temptations that we see Christ facing. You can look that up at Preparing You, temptations. The temptations of Christ, which were the temptations of Gideon, the temptations of Moses, the temptations of Abraham, to rule over their fellow man, to have dominion over their fellow man. But that's not what we were given. And so we should not create institutions where we gain power over our neighbor and can force our neighbor to contribute to our welfare. That is contrary to the natural law. That is a covetous practice. It will result in you becoming merchandise, human resources of some government or another, and it will also result in cursing your children, usually with debt they can never pay. Peter tells us this in the New Testament, but because of the selective examination of the gospel, most churches do not tell you this. And you will need to know this if you will seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the kingdom of God is the right to be ruled by God. So let's take a quick look at Moses because there's a lot to look at. You know, Moses was this prophet 
in the Abrahamic religions, which would include Judaism, would include the Muslims, and of course would include uh, the Christians, or should include Christians. That Moses is this prophet that uh, is a part of the Judeo-Christian, actually even Muslim <laughs> institution. I always remember that when I was looking at the roles of who was on the sailing ship of John Paul Jones when he said, I have not yet begun to fight. I wanted to look at the muster rolls of John Paul Jones's ship, the Bamham Rashad. And uh, there were Muslims. There were a lot of Muslims on board those ships. And they seemed to be often marksmen. And because uh, a lot of the Arabs, because they lived in the deserts where your enemy was could be seen coming from a long ways off, uh, they liked these new guns invented in America, these sharpshooter guns where you could shoot a long range with this spinning bullet. And so they, a lot of them became marksmen and they were on board of the bomb home Rashad making uh, freedom uh, for America. <laughs> so they've been around for a long time. But I hate to even refer to people as Jews or Christians or Muslims or any denomination or religion or anything because we're individuals and that's that's part of the gospels that we're groups aren't accepted into the kingdom of God <laughs> individuals can approach the kingdom of God now they learn to walk together but they're not a group because they are free assemblies which is a thing that we constantly come back to but if we look at the conflict with the rulers that are mentioned throughout the Bible, Cain, Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, uh, all these rulers, uh, Balaam, the heir of Balaam, Nicolaitans, the conquered people, that's what Nicolaitans mean. doesn't have anything to do with a guy named Nicholas. It has to do with people who are conquered. And we know this because in the New Testament they talk about the, the era of the Nicolaitan and the era of the Balaam are the same. They're equated together. And Balaam in another language means conquered people, just as Nicolaitan in the Greek means conquered people. Well, what conquers them is their appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them at the expense of their neighbor. This is what conquers them. This is why they tell you in Proverbs not to eat the dainties of rulers because they are deceitful meats and not to consent with them to have one purse because you run towards death. Uh, not to eat at the tables. What should have been for your welfare at their tables becomes a snare. And those tables are civil tables of legal charity. They are the public religions, the free bread of Rome. You, Christians would not eat of the free bread of Rome. And again, this takes us back to all those trials in North Africa, the trial of Paul with Festus. It was because of the fact they did not participate in the free bread of Rome because that was provided by men who exercised authority. They had their own daily ministration. And this is what they were going to have to do in Egypt. But fortunately, Moses was the God of the city. He was, when he said, let my people go, he meant, let my people. I own the people. Just exactly what Abraham was saying Abrahamic prophet Abraham had saved all the people who were taken off 
as slaves by these conquering armies, these pirating uh, armies who conquered Sodom and were taking off these people as well as as much booty as they could carry. They may have even took some of the people to carry the booty. And uh, when Abraham and his uh, free altars, his free assembly neighbors, conquered these people overnight, all the booty belonged to them as well as all the people were now servants of them. But Abraham said, I'm, because Sodom, king of Sodom came out and says, give me the people, you can keep the stuff. Of course, you can keep the stuff anyway. But he said, I'm not going to take one buckle of these things. Well, he also wasn't going to take the people. He was there to set men free. And Moses was there to set men free. And Christ was there to set men free. Unfortunately, modern religions are there getting everybody to eat at those tables, which should be for their welfare, but has actually become a snare. Because they do not teach the perfect law of liberty, which creates the social bonds of a free society, which Moses was going to have to do when he came back to Egypt, having learned the lessons that he learned out there in the desert, he was going to come back to Egypt and set the people free, but the people still had to learn the institutions of freedom. They had to be written in their hearts and their minds, at least in their practices. So this idea of the kingdom of God or liberty under God that Moses was going to bring back to the people so that they could go out and serve God of heaven rather than the gods of Pharaoh with Pharaoh as a god or even serve himself who was the god of the city according to what we're reading in the Greek you know with a literal translation people aren't going to like that but then you can go read our article Paul says there are gods many and there are men who say they are gods but are not gods and who are these men who say they are gods but are not gods these are the men who can exercise authority and make decisions for you they have the right the power to choose for you. When you're going to do this, what you're going to do, what you're going to pay, what you're going to give, they have that power. How did they get that power? Because of what should have been for your welfare was actually a snare and a trap and has brought you back into the bondage of Egypt. The whole world. Now, a lot of people don't like my interpretations or my explanations of what I see when I read the Bible, which you can call it my interpretations. But I'm just telling you what I see. And what I see is the whole world, all over, Australia, China, uh, Malaysia, uh, all of Europe, everybody, they don't have a right to 20% of their labor. In many places, they don't have a right to 30% of their labor. In some places, more. If you're minimum wage in Sweden, you're going to have to pay 30% of your labor right off the top. And you're going to have to pay sales tax on the food you buy. And luxury tax on top of that. And they've actually cut their taxes back. You could actually, the way their taxes used to be back in the 70s, you could actually owe more in taxes than you earned in a given year. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And you go, well, that's, that's rigor. That's rigor. But they rolled that back. And we can show you, and we'll talk about it later, that 
uh, in Israel back in 2003, they, they had a financial collapse, a whole collapse of their economy, a re- regular financial dearth in Israel. And uh, Netanyahu came along and said, we need to change from this socialist model. Because he, he knew they had a semi-capitalist model, but they also had a semi-socialist model operating the, in their institutions at the same time. And he rolled that back so that there was less of the social welfare. And he could do it because there was already economic collapse. And uh, it saved them. Well, little does he know that if they roll back all the way to the ways of Jesus Christ, they would even be more saved. But the amazing thing is the ways of Jesus Christ were actually the ways of Moses. So we talk in this article on Moses that I have also at Preparing You that you can go the prohibitions by Moses and the prophets of not oppressing your neighbor, the poor, the stranger in your midst is such a common theme. Uh, their words at least five, there were at least uh, five different words expressing this r- oppression that we see forbidden by the prophets. There was Lachet, Yana, Ashak, Daka, uh, that, and there's another one, I actually haven't got it written down here. Let's see, where is that? Uh, oh, Gazelle, and, uh, these all mean oppression. Because the Bible mostly talks about government. It only mentions religion five times. It mentions government and our relationship with the government and the institutions of government. It, it, it talks about at least 700 times, maybe a thousand times. It's talking about that. Because ultimately, that's why they talk about the kingdom of God is actually a government. But then even when I say that, even the church The word church today, defined in Black's Law Dictionary, is one form of government. Because there actually is a form of government where the people are free. And so the government does not have the power to decide for the people in all these different aspects of life. This idea of of deciding for you certain things has become so common that we don't even recognize tyranny when it is biting us. And of course, tyranny doesn't bite you with the big teeth of government all the time. What it's really biting with you is the, the thousands of little appetites of all your neighbors who want more and more benefits. They want their student loans paid off. They want Medicare. They want health care. They want all these things. And they cannot even imagine a way in which they could provide all these things without the civic tables of big government. They think that, oh, you can't do it any other way. We used to do it in America, but they can't imagine it. But if you read in Psalm sixty-nine twenty-three, let their eyes be darkened and they see not and make their loins continually to shake. In other words, be afraid. This is why Jesus starts off with fear not. I added to our page uh, just this morning on uh, mass formation of psychosis. I put a um, Bertram Russell quote there that really kind of says it all. But you can see that for yourself in your own spare time. Ecclesiastes 2.14 The wise man's eyes 
are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. I myself perceived also that one event happened to them all. So bad things happen everywhere. I just recently came across, uh, you know, I know, knew about it before, one of the oldest archaeological sites in in the world today. It stems back to what they believe is 12,000 years. And there are all kinds of symbols carved on these pillars that were buried completely in the ground. Amazing pillars that they, they set up and exactly what was going on there and how much they're going to discover uh, in this ancient of ancient sites is that they believe now that there was a catastrophic event of meteorites hitting the planet causing literally what we would call a nuclear winter where there was a huge die-off of people and uh, then 1,300 years or more uh, where people were trying to survive uh, often a great deal of that survival was underground and people did survive and then from that we have the replenishing of the earth that they talk about in Genesis we talked about that where it says to go out and replenish the earth and so because certain things are not mentioned in the biblical text people have come along and written it their private interpretation of the biblical text believing that there is no other information they say well we only want to read what's in the bible but in almost every case that people say that, they selectively read what is in the Bible. They they cut out certain things that are in the Bible that they don't want to look at. They don't want to see. And they don't account for. Me, I have I was born with this. All the pieces have to fit. You can't just take pieces of the puzzle and hammer them in. You can't take a scissors to the pieces of the puzzle and cut out little things to make them fit. Everything has to fit. And so this is and everything does fit. This is what is amazing. Everything does fit if our eyes are not darkened, which is why in the New Testament, in Romans 11.10, they tell us, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. That's what's happening. People are in the bondage of Egypt and they don't even want to admit it. But we'll explain more about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. So be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about this idea of uh, the eyes being darkened so that people right in front of them, they can see the truth spelled out right in front of them. But they don't see it because their eyes have been darkened. And you can explain it to them. You can show them. You can go through it piece by piece. But they just simply cannot see it. They, because they they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. Their eyes have been darkened, as we said just before the break, is Psalm sixty nine twenty three and Ecclesiastes and in Romans eleven ten. But also in John three nineteen, which is you know, if you go John three sixteen they talk about being born again. But you know you haven't been born again 
if your eyes are still darkened. Because if you're born again, your eyes will see these things that covetous practices make you merchandise. That covetous practices curse your children. And that it is a covetous practice to desire benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And that, especially from men who exercise authority one over the other. And Christ forbid us to be that way. Yet all these churches, with all the good things that they do and all the signs and wonders that they perform and all the the praising of Jesus Christ and the singing of songs, they all say, that's okay. And now it's gotten so bad that they're now saying, oh, abortion is okay. And all the the long lists of that Paul has of things that we can't do and that we shouldn't do that have no inheritance in the kingdom are now okay. They're all okay. And uh, even when you, you say it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who doeth the will of the Father, which is a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, people say, well, that was before his crucifixion. And they throw out the teachings of Jesus Christ saying we're saved simply because we believe in an image of Christ that's created by the same church or the same synagogue, if it's not Christ, the image of Moses, or the Muslims, that is not true. It is not the true image of God the Father, who does not want us to exercise dominion over our neighbor to get stuff for free. Because that is coveting your neighbor's goods. And it's a violation of the natural law. And we'll show you how Stoics, at the time of Christ, in the time of the early church persecution under Marcus Aurelius, also had their eyes darkened. So they couldn't see that either. Because Stoics believed in virtue. Believed in self-sacrifice. Believed in all the things that you hear about. Like I said, the, the, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius sound like a Presbyterian minister at times when you're reading them. You know, it's a five-volume set. He, he wrote a great deal, and we have that. But he persecuted Christians no end. Why? Because he couldn't see this one basic thing about being born again that qualifies whether or not you are born again that you can read in John 3.19. And this is the condemnation that the light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because of their deeds were evil. And it's evil to force men to contribute to your welfare. To send men who exercise authority. To send those taskmasters to your neighbor's house to force your neighbor to contribute to what you want for free. That's evil. That's covetous. It's part of at least one of the Ten Commandments, if not two of them, depending on how you number them. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God." Are your deeds covetous deeds? Are you desiring benefits from men who exercise authority one over the other? 
This is why in Psalm 69.22, their table became a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it be a trap. That's David telling us, and Paul, of course, quotes David. But we don't seem to see that. But we need to see that. Because, you know, John 8.12, Then spake Jesus again, Unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You know, Acts twenty six seventeen, Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. But people who are covetous have no inheritance. That's what Paul says. And he is just speaking within the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we see in Romans thirteen eleven, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than we, when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. And let us put on that armor of light. That's what Paul is telling us. Let us walk honestly as in the days, not in the rioting and the drunkenness on all these benefits, not in the chambering of wantonness for all these benefits, not in strife and envying others, you know, like, well, we only want to tax the rich. But... Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That doesn't mean to not cut firewood to keep you warm in the winter or not to put up uh, canning and uh, some grain in, the, uh, in your larder. It has to do with the provisions for the flesh that are provided by the men that we see them bragging about Ananias is bragging and Tertullius is bragging about when they are trying to drag Paul into judgment before Festus he's talking about a provisions that bring national tranquility that we do partake of and that is that is the welfare of the temples of Rome the free bread of Rome. The same as it's the free bread of FDR and LBJ and and Trump and Biden. They're all men who exercise authority one over the other. They all take away from your neighbor to provide you with benefits. And Moses knew that we had to get away from that if we were going to set the people free. But like I said, we to take a quick look at, at Moses... And so that we have this coverage of Moses, you can go and look. I have audios up already on a page on Moses that you can go and listen to and and get a better and better view of uh, Moses. I found that that I had made a slight uh, archaeological mistake (laughs) in the space this week and corrected it. But uh, 
the the reality is is that Moses was pulled from the water, which we will see as we go into Exodus two. Uh, by actually, she didn't pull him from the water. She sent her servant down to pull him from the water. And one of the reasons why is that, that water was just infested with snakes. Why <laughs> says snakes in the reeds? That's where the snakes dwelt and and were constantly catching birds, etc. But uh, so she, they, I thought it was interesting that she sent her servant down to pull him from the water. <laughs> but she did adopt him as her son, and she was the rightful heir. But they, archaeologists will tell you that there is no evidence that Moses ever even existed, that the Israelites ever came out of Egypt, and I believe that that is a timeline thing. And so you, you need to go and look for, at that for yourself. But in looking at these archaeological evidence that they had the time that it, it was actually a, a earlier that Moses was there, and that they came out of a place called Avaris that they're now, they've only got a tiny little percentage of Avaris excavated, but that seems to be where the Israelites were in Goshen. And there's a lot of reason to believe that. But it's all circumstantial evidence to, to some degree. But that's what archaeology is, is that you look here and you find this piece of the puzzle and that piece of the puzzle and you put it together. And I find it very fascinating some of the things that they're coming up with and, and that they're studying in this examination of the archaeological evidence that is uh, being found all the time. But I kind of uh, favor that this Moses, you know, you can go look at Tim Mahoney's Patterns of Evidence uh, the Exodus, he has a book, he has films out, and he depends heavily on uh, Dr. David Roll, who's an Egyptologist. They look at uh, like the Amarna tablets and uh, the excavations of Avaris, but like I said, it's only like 2 or 3% of Avaris that's even been excavated. But there's lots of peculiar things that they're finding out that that really does appear to be the time. But then... What is that time? Is it 1473 to 1458? Is it uh, is it later than that in 1446 uh, that the Exodus is actually taking place? Uh, different people talk about different things, but personally, I think that the Hetzet Sut uh, era, the Tutan Moses the first, Tutan Moses the second, Tutan Moses the third era, and I, I cover this on the page about Moses and I equate it with a lot of things trying to get you to understand that Tutmosis the second was had questionable birth. Tutmosis the third definitely had questionable birth, that he wasn't the rightful heir, that it appears that Hepsepsit had this individual that she thought very highly of that disappeared from Egypt for a, per- a period of time that was extremely knowledgeable in astronomy and in history and in the sciences and even the military strategies and he built all kinds of stuff. He was an architect that he suddenly leaves also uh, Egypt for this period of time but then appears to come back and there's a whole uproar with uh, Moses the third. And that may be the period of time in which they live uh, and exit that period. But the key thing is to understand the spirit that Moses is bringing, which is contained in the text. 
But for those of you who say, oh, Moses never existed. I mean, there are people out there who say Jesus never existed. Nobody else wrote about him. And we have whole pages that show you all kinds of people wrote about him. There's all kinds of evidence that he existed. But our image of Jesus may not be accurate. Our image of Moses may not be accurate. Our image of what they were doing when they were leaving Egypt that bondage of Egypt and what they had to do in the wilderness so that they did not return to the bondage of Egypt like creating the golden calf and so that they did not take on the strategies that we see with this new pharaoh that did not know Joseph and so they actually have a very small reference to it but we have an article that explains it in much but it actually is affecting a great deal of modern Christianity believe it or not is the what the red heifer is. And and like we say, the red heifer had nothing to do with a cat, cow, a bovine, <laughs> or a heifer. Had nothing to do with the color red. That it had to do with what Pharaoh should have done with the Israelites who were getting so strong in Egypt, but did not choose to do. And it is also has a great deal to do with what we need to do. Which is why... Jesus commanded that the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. It is not the way of Christ. It is not the way of the kingdom of God to have an isolated little congregation where you meet every week every week, and everybody makes everybody else feel good. And you, you stimulate an emotion that makes you feel righteous. Because it's not those who sing or say, Lord, Lord, or or get an emotional feeling, but those who doeth the will of the Father. Because And you will want to do the will of the Father if your eyes are not darkened. If your eyes are darkened, you will not even know what the will of the Father is. Unfortunately, you will not see that disaster coming that falls on us all. You, you will be swept away with the currents of emotionalism, uh, you know, they're simulated by the modern day mountains of Samara, Samaria, which are the, the, the media. The media will sweep you away to think this or that. Or your churches will sweep you away to think this or that. But you will not know that you will not hear. You will not see the light. Unless you are willing to receive the the whole light. This is, you know, like Patrick Henry. The whole truth and provide for it. God will give you a way in which to provide for it. And he's already done this through Christ and showed you the way. That's what Christianity was called, the way. And the way of the Christians where they gathered together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They took care of one another. Those that had shared with those that did not have enough. Because they actually lived... By faith, hope, and charity. The pagans, the Pharisees, lived by a system of Corbin, a system of sacrifice that was forcing the contributions of the people with men who were accountants rather than men who took account of the people were actually helping, making sure that nobody was left behind and nobody was... Uh, that's what the Levites were. They were serving the, it says the tabernacle of the congregation. And the same word for tabernacle is the same word for tents. 
So they were serving the tents of the congregation. They were providing the social welfare that had once been provided for by Pharaoh in his system of social welfare during times of shortages and famines. But now they were providing it. That's what the Levites were doing. But they were doing it in a way that strengthened the poor. In Sodom, they did it in a way that weakened the poor, did not strengthen the poor. And that's what they were doing in Egypt, which is why the Egyptian women were not vigorous. Uh, the, the Egyptian people were not prospering. But the Israelite people were prospering, and the more you oppressed them, the more they prospered. Because that's how muscles get stronger, is that you put a strain on Well, like I said, the good news is uh, there's a lot of strain coming. Uh, They just appointed 80,000 new taskmasters (laughs) in the United States and armed them. They're arming 80. They're not just accountants pushing pencils and paper. They're arming 80,000 new taskmasters, new IRS agents, which is fine. I expect them to do that. Because I'm I'm not interested in tearing down the systems of the world. I'm interested in everybody repenting, opening their eyes, and seeing the way of Jesus Christ, and becoming doers of his word. And then you will learn the lessons of Exodus 2, and Exodus 3, and Exodus 4, that the people had to learn in order to to recreate those social bonds. We have an article up on social bonds. You can look that up at Preparing You. That explains, because just recently a doctor in America, because of the craziness that's going on in America, said that we are a sick society and we need to recreate the social bonds of society. And we do that with our institutions. But they have to be institutions with the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the kingdom written in them. If they have the spirit of Satan, the spirit of the adversary, the spirit of Cain, the spirit of Nimrod, the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of Balaam written in them, they will weaken the people. If they have the spirit of Christ in them, they will strengthen the people. And unfortunately today, the modern religions are really weakening the people. They are not strengthening the people because they are lulling them into a false sense of religion, of faith, of inspiration because they have unmoored the gospel of the kingdom from the precept upon precept that Christ said, you know, we're not to covet our neighbor's goods. Charity was, by Paul's standards, was the most important thing. Charity. Well, he's not talking legal charity. He's not talking charity by the civil state. Because we know that charity weakens the people. We know that charity, we have a whole article on legal charity so you can understand what it is. It was known by Lady Godiva. That's You read our story on Lady Godiva, what she was really complaining about. But the church a hundred years later, at least 
members of a church a hundred years later write ridiculous stories about Lady Godivus that nobody actually knows what she was talking about. She was saying that you cannot force the contributions of the people to take care of the needy of society. It will destroy society. You have to do it by charity. We knew that in America. If Trump was really going to make America great again, he would be telling us this. This is what he would be preaching. But he does. his eyes are darkened in many places too. And if you think he is your salvation, you are sadly mistaken. Now, I hope that he his eyes wake up and maybe when he realizes the damages of the injections that he created, or he didn't actually create it, but he promoted, because he was easily deceived. He was easily fooled. And his pride has kept him from seeing his mistake. And until he confesses that, he is a danger to everybody. But I don't hate him. I'm not a member of the I hate Trump club. I'm not, I'm not in a member of the I hate Biden club. People who hate the leaders of their land are not going to look at their failings, their error. They're going to blame everything on their, their leaders and their rulers. And, they're not going to be able to do anything about it. They'll try to change it with vote. They're, they will not be able to do it with vote. I think there should be an honest vote. I'm all for an honest vote if you're going to have a vote in your democracy. But my goal is to preach that other form of government, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this is what you're going to see Moses doing. And the circumstances of, you know, the Pharaoh heart being hardened and not letting the people go and everything. That was essential because the people had not yet learned how to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And modern Christians need to learn that now. Because the unrighteous mammon, the unrighteous entrusted wealth, the 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 city, the civil uh one purse system that they've created where their labor now belongs to the government, their land now belongs to the government, their children now belong to the government. We explain all why I say that. Uh, some of you say, no, they don't. Well, I will show you in natural law how you are bringing that about to your institutions and have been doing so for a hundred years. Understanding how you got to where you're at today. You cannot deny that you're not in the bondage of Egypt. Because more than 20% of your labor belongs to the government. It comes in lots of different ways. But So once you admit that, then we can see how you got here. And then you can find out how to exit to go back to where you need to be if you want to be free souls under God. And that's why we're going to go through Exodus 2 next time on Keys of the Kingdom. We have an afternoon program too. And we'll take calls on the afternoon program if you have any questions. God bless. Peace on your house. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. 
For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.